0: Childbirth is an amazing experience. I had the privilege of being present for the births of all three of our children. And it probably would not be an overstatement to say that it is a miraculous event. What was also miraculous was that I didn't pass out in the delivery room, but that's another story. It is remarkable that a little human being can live inside his mother and then come forth to the outside world. What is also fascinating to consider is that a nine-month pregnant mother can sometimes go along in life with very little hint that labor is about to begin until it actually begins. Other times, there are numerous hints along the way. Sometimes, The labor begins slowly before building to the intensity of the actual childbirth. That is the imagery our Lord uses in Mark 13 to describe the future tribulation period. Turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 13 as we continue our trek through Mark's gospel. And please follow along as I read verses 5 through 8. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 5. And Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Or most translations, these are the beginnings of birth pains. This is the first part of a message given by Jesus known as the Olivet Discourse. It is called that because Jesus gave this message while he was sitting somewhere on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem. He had left the temple after saying that someday it would be destroyed. You can't imagine how shocking that was for the disciples to hear. The disciples did not know how to take that statement by Jesus, but they probably assumed that somehow that would usher in the end of the present age and lead into the kingdom age. So in verse 4, Jesus asked them, or Jesus was asked by them about the end of the age. Jesus addresses that issue here in this chapter, which goes all the way through to the end of the chapter. As we saw in the last message from Mark's gospel, this sermon, this talk by Jesus was prompted by his predictions regarding the temple. It covers the future seven-year tribulation period. It focuses on the Jewish people. And it culminates in the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth and ultimately leads into the millennial kingdom. One of those points is especially important to keep in mind, and that is the fact that this discourse by Jesus focuses on the Jewish people. Now remember, this discourse was spoken by the Jewish Messiah to his Jewish disciples about what is going to happen at the end of the age which will focus on the Jewish people. A failure to realize the Jewish focus of this discourse is what results in many of the interpretational mistakes that are made in connection with this chapter. For example... People look for the rapture in this chapter or they look for the church in this chapter, but they can't find any such thing. That's because the church and its gathering together unto Jesus in the air is not the subject of this message given by Jesus. The subject is God's program for the Jewish people, the chosen people of the old covenant. It is, that is the focus of this message for the, God's program for the Jewish people at the end of the age and leading into the kingdom age, which was promised by their prophets throughout Hebrew Scripture. The events that our Lord mentioned in the verses we read just a moment ago are called the beginning of birth pains or the beginning of sorrows. You see, the future tribulation period is going to be a time of pain and sorrow for the Jewish people who are alive on planet Earth at that time. Scripture is clear that they will be hated, they will be persecuted, they will be killed, but eventually they will be, be converted and be delivered. So the word picture used by Jesus when he used the phrase, the beginning of birth pains, is a very accurate description. The process Will not be pleasant by any means, but the end result will be wonderful. Now, even though this discourse by Jesus emphasizes the Jewish focus of the end of the age, I wouldn't want to give the impression that nothing is going to be happening in the lives of others who are in the world at this time. The book of Revelation makes it clear that many things will be happening all over the face of this planet. And many things will be happening in the lives of all the people who will be living at the time. Revelation 6 through 18 tells us a great deal about those events. So to see the parallel with this part of the Olivet Discourse here in in Mark 13, turn with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. This chapter begins the section of the book that unfolds for us the events of the future seven-year tribulation period. Just as John's gospel spends over half the book describing the final week of Jesus' life, so also John spends over half the book of Revelation describing the final week of years foretold in Daniel's great prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. In case you are not familiar with that prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, allow me to just summarize what it says. In Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel told Daniel that God would focus on the people of Israel for a period of 490 years, and when that time period is all over, it will cause Israel's rebellion to cease. At the end of this 490-year period, (coughs) Israel will no longer be in rebellion, which the people of Israel are in today. They are in rebellion against God. But at the end of this 490-year period, the people of Israel will no longer be in rebellion against God, and the result will be everlasting righteousness. Now, it's important to understand that 483 years of that prophecy have already elapsed. 483 years of that time have have already taken place. That leaves a period of seven years to complete the prophecy. According to Daniel 9.27, that final seven-year period will begin when the future man of sin, commonly called the Antichrist, makes some kind of treaty or covenant with Israel probably to have access to their natural resources. But after three and a half years, he will break that treaty. He will not allow the Jewish people to carry on their sacrifices in their newly rebuilt temple. And according to 2 Thessalonians 2 and the book of Revelation, he will instead demand that they worship him. Because the people of Israel will refuse, he will begin to persecute them ruthlessly. That seven-year time period is what is described for us In Revelation 6 through 18, chapter 6 through 18. Notice how it begins here in chapter 6. John says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. That is the beginning of sorrows, to use the phrase Jesus used in our text back in Mark 13, 8. Now the question is often asked, specifically when does the wrath of God begin in relation to this future seven-year tribulation period? It is my opinion that the day of the Lord, or the great outpouring of the wrath of God, begins with the opening of this very first seal here in verses 1 and 2, which is right at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. There are at least three proofs for this, three pieces of evidence that this begins the, the wrath of God. Proof number one, notice that it is Christ who breaks these seals. He is the source of the tragedies unleashed through the opening of the first four seals. Some Bible teachers say that the events which take place during the first five seals of Revelation 6 are simply an expression of the wrath of man. They also say that the wrath of God doesn't begin until the opening of the sixth seal, down in verses 12 through 17. That is the teaching of a very popular view called the pre wrath rapture view. But notice that verse one of this chapter makes it clear that our Lord is the one who opens the first seal, and when he does, the tragedies begin to happen here on planet Earth. The opening of the first seal is the release of the Antichrist onto the world scene. You may struggle with that. You may think, now hold it. How How could this be that the Lord would release the Antichrist as an expression of his wrath? Remember, even at the cross, there is a sense in which God's wrath and man's wrath were combined. The Jews and Romans took out their wrath on Jesus when he was on the cross. But at the same time, God was unleashing his wrath On sin. In a similar fashion, the opening of the first seal is God releasing the Antichrist onto the world scene as an expression of his wrath. It's as if God is saying to the world, Listen, you have rejected the truth, you've not wanted the truth, so your judgment is a leader who hates the truth. Here he is. Secondly, a second piece of evidence that this is the beginning of the wrath of God is this point. God is the one who determines the extent and effects of the famine of the third seal. That's down in verse 6. Verse 6 makes it clear that this famine which will hit planet earth when the third seal is opened is not merely a famine resulting from unfortunate circumstances on earth. In other words, it's not the result of poor human management, poor human planning, Poor human foresight. No, this is not a natural disaster. It's a supernatural event. It is a famine with specific parameters because it's an expression of the wrath of God. And then proof number three, that God's wrath begins right here in verses 1 and 2, is this. The first four seals involve death by sword or war, famine, Pestilence or plague and wild beasts. Amazingly, in Ezekiel fourteen twenty-one, God specifically states that these four things are instruments of his wrath. Here's the verse. For thus says the Lord God, how much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence To cut off man and beast from it. Those four judgments are the exact four judgments that are unleashed with the first four seals of Revelation chapter 6. And God specifically states that those four things are instruments of his wrath. So, for those reasons, I believe that the opening of the very first seal in Revelation chapter 6 is the beginning of the day of the Lord or the great outpouring of the wrath of God. Verse 2 says this, John says, I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. This is the beginning of world peace. The rider of this horse, this white horse, has a bow, but no arrows. That seems to indicate that he will conquer Without the shedding of blood, he will conquer peacefully. As I mentioned earlier, we know from Daniel 9 24 through 27 that the last seven years of Daniel's great prophecy begin when the Antichrist signs a seven year covenant with the nation of Israel. That is the beginning of the seven year tribulation, which is the time of God's wrath. So think about this. The time of God's wrath begins with world peace. What strange irony. But it won't last very long. Verse 3 says, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. Each of these first four seals unfolds the same way. The Lord Jesus breaks the seal. One of the four living creatures says, Come. And then John sees the result which is depicted by a certain colored horse. This time, the horse is red. Verse 4, another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. So the time of peace is followed by a time of devastating war. The one sitting on this red horse was granted To take peace from the earth. That's further proof, by the way, that the man on the first horse came bringing peace. Because if this is removing peace, then there was peace. There had been peace. Now the peace is removed. Notice that the text says it was granted to him. In other words, this will all take place under God's sovereign control. Things are not out of control at this point. It looks like it, and it will look like it when these events occur. And we have no idea when that will be, but whenever these events occur, it will look like things are out of control, but they're not out of control. This isn't merely the work of men. This is the sovereign judgment of God. The time of false peace is followed by a time of war. In our text in Mark 13, which parallels this passage, Jesus said, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. But not only will this time be characterized by warfare on a national level or international level, the implication of this text is that it will also be characterized by killing on an individual level. There will be war between opposing armies and there will be civil anarchy as mobs of people take to the streets and begin killing with abandon. We've seen glimpses of this kind of tragedy when riots break out and people go on random killing sprees. That's what will happen when this second seal is broken. That's why the second horse is fiery red. Its blood-red appearance depicts the horror, the awfulness of killing and murder and widespread bloodshed. Verse 5 says, When he opened the third seal... I heard the third living creature say, "'Come.' So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. This time the horse is black, and the rider has a pair of scales in his hands. This scale was an ancient balance scale. I'm sure you've seen pictures of these. There is a center rod which goes up, and it is centered on another rod which runs across, Hanging on each end of the crossbar are some kind of little baskets or receptacles for measuring weight. That's what the writer of the black horse was holding in his hand. What is this depicting? Well, verse 6 says, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Notice that this voice comes from the midst of the four living creatures. Who is in the midst of the four living creatures? Chapter 4, verse 6 says that around the throne of God were four living creatures. Picture that. Around the throne of God. So God the Father is in the midst of the four living creatures. So this is His voice which is sounding forth. He is the one who makes this pronouncement, which is further evidence that this is a time of righteous wrath. This is not a natural disaster. This is a supernatural event. It is a judgment with specific parameters put because it's an expression of God's wrath. Specifically, what is this judgment? It is the judgment of famine and financial collapse. Whenever a time of economic scarcity came upon the land of Israel, they were said to have to eat bread weighed by measure. The scales are a symbol of scarcity. A quart of wheat, now we don't usually think in these terms, so let me sort of translate it for us. A quart of wheat is the amount to barely sustain one person for one day, and a denarius was one day's wage. So what this is saying is, you work one whole day, and at the end of the day, you get a quart of wheat. You work one whole day, and your pay is barely enough wheat to sustain you for that day, leaving nothing for any family members. Or, you could work one whole day, and your pay would be three quarts of barley. Barley was usually, usually used to feed animals. So you could get more of it than wheat. Under normal conditions in John's day, a denarius would have bought 10 to 12 quarts of wheat or 30 to 36 quarts of barley. When this seal is broken, a denarius will only buy one quart of wheat and three of barley. What then is this describing? It is describing massive inflation An economic upheaval. It is describing conditions worse than any recession or depression in history. Some of you may remember hearing stories of the economic conditions in Germany after World War I. I have read that people actually would load thousands of bills into a wheelbarrow and haul them to, to market to buy one loaf of bread. That's what runaway inflation does. It renders money virtually worthless. Such will be the case when this third seal is broken. This may very well be what sets the stage for the Antichrist to impose his 666 marking system, which will be required for anyone who wants to buy anything or sell anything. The last phrase in verse 6 says, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Oil was used to prepare bread, and wine was used for cooking. So these things are not harmed in order that man might still have some way to survive. Then verse 7 tells us, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. It's the same pattern we've seen in the first three seals. Verse 8 So I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death and by the beasts of the earth. The word pale here in this verse describes a pale green color. The horse is that color because it perfectly describes the color of a decomposing corpse. The rider of this horse is named Death. Hades, which is the place of the dead, floated along behind him. Let that that picture just crystallize in your mind. Here is Death riding on a horse with Hades floating along behind. Death takes the body, and Hades takes the soul. It's a grim... Picture of God's judgment on ungodly men and women. Their bodies will die, and Hades will take their souls to be tormented. John tells us when this seal is broken, one-fourth of the world's population will die. That's about one and a half to two billion people according to population numbers today. What is, what is the source, or what will be the source of w- such widespread death? This verse tells us it will come from war, murder, famine, or this text, war, murder, famine, starvation, plague, disease, pestilence, and wild animals. Worldwide war leads to the breakdown of civilization. When civilization crumbles mankind's defenses against disease crumble as well. When there is no sanitation system, no safe drinking water, and not enough food, diseases like cholera, typhoid, and dysentery spread like a consuming fire. For example, during World War I, a deadly influenza broke out over the earth. Now catch this. Three times as many people succumbed to it as fell upon the field of battle. Three times as many people died as died in battle. That's the kind of thing that is going to happen as a part of this fourth seal. Then people will become vulnerable to predatory creatures. This could refer to wild animals like bears, lions, and wolves. It could also refer to coyotes, dogs, rats, and other such creatures. It's a description of total chaos and anarchy. It's almost incomprehensible. And again, I say this may very well set the stage for the Antichrist to offer his solutions to the world. And the people will be looking for anything, anybody who can do anything about the situation. And the Antichrist will offer his solutions and demand that all the world worship him. By comparing the description of these four seals with Jesus' words in Mark 13 in our text, we understand that we have just seen here in verses 1 through 8 the first three and a half years of the future seven-year tribulation period. So let's go back to Mark 13, our text, to briefly compare this with the words of Jesus. Back to Mark chapter 13. The disciples asked Jesus about the end of the age. How is it all going to end, Jesus? And so he tells them here in Mark 13. And here was his answer, or the beginning of his answer, verse 5. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. Deception will reign throughout the future tribulation period. That's why Jesus gives this warning. We know from Revelation chapter 13 that the Antichrist will deceive multitudes. Paul says that same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2. We also know from Revelation 13 that the false prophet will deceive just as many, maybe more. But even prior to that, or along with those dominant characters at the end of the time, at the end of time, there will be many people. Proclaiming themselves as the one who can solve the problems of the world. The Messiah to the world. They will proclaim themselves as the answer to man's problems. They will claim to be Christ. And many will believe them. Verse 6, Jesus says, for many. Notice that, not just some, not just a few. Many, many will come in my name saying, I am he. And will deceive many. That corresponds to the first seal of Revelation chapter 6. The first seal is the coming of the Antichrist and the emergence of a false, deceptive peace. Things start out peacefully, but then it turns to war, disaster, and death in the next three seals. Those are described in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, but when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. That is exactly what we saw in Revelation chapter 6, exactly. The first seal is the emergence of of a deceptive world peace. The second seal is war and killing. Then the third seal is famine. That's why Jesus mentions famine here in verse 8. He says, A ri- nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. All of these tragedies result in massive death, which is the fourth seal in Revelation chapter 6. The parallels are clear and obvious because Jesus' words here in Mark 13 and Revelation chapter 6 are describing the same time period of the future. Now here's the difference. The book of Revelation emphasizes the global scale of these events, whereas Jesus is more focused on how these things will affect the Jewish people. But both passages... Mark 13, Revelation 6, are describing the same future time period. And Jesus says at the end of verse 8, These are the beginnings of sorrows. This is just the beginning of sorrows. The word sorrows in my translation is also the word birth pangs, which is the way it is translated in most of the other translations we have in English. Jesus compared this time to the birth pains of a woman in labor. Think about the parallels. They start out slow and with less intensity, but they increase in rapidity and intensity. Well, that's exactly the way the seven-year tribulation will unfold. It will start out peaceful, but then the birth pangs will begin as seals two and three and four are opened. And once things come to seal five of Revelation chapter six, the rapidity and the intensity of the birth pangs increase because there are still two more seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments. Jesus doesn't give all that detail here in Mark 13 because as I've mentioned a few times this morning, his focus is on how these events will affect the Jewish people. That is why he goes on in verses 9 through 23 of this chapter to talk about how the Jewish people are going to be hated and how they are going to be persecuted. Who knows? It's it's possible that the people of the world will somehow blame them for everything that's happening. That's not been an uncommon thing if you know your history for Jewish people to be blamed for ills of society in which they're residing, maybe that's going to happen again in the future. Regardless of what prompts it, Jesus is clear, Scripture is clear, that the Jewish people will be hated and they will be persecuted. Remember, this message from Jesus was prompted by questions from the disciples regarding the end of the present age and the coming of the kingdom age. They wanted to know Jesus... How is it all going to end? What is going to be the end of the present age? They were Jewish men, and they were looking at things through that grid of their own culture, background, etc. Therefore, Jesus answered their questions from that perspective here in Mark 13. Without going into all the detail of what is going to be happening throughout the rest of the world, the book of Revelation gives us those details. We know from many passages that this will be a global series of events affecting the whole world. Now, when is it going to happen? No one knows. No one knows when it's going to happen. It could begin any day now. It could be 50, 100, 150 years out in the future. So don't hear me saying this morning that this is all going to begin soon because we don't know that's the case, but it could begin soon. And the way things are shaping up around the world and falling into place for the end times, it certainly looks like that it could begin soon. For example, the conflict in the Middle East between Israel and the Palestinians is still unsolved. And much of the world wants someone to step in with some kind of solution to solve it. In addition, the world is continually trying to break down barriers between nations by forming alliances such as the European Union or the North American Union or or other types of of, uh, uh, combinations. Things are definitely headed toward a global economy, a one-world government. If you just notice the news, read the papers, you hear talk about that often. It's exactly what Scripture predicts. So this future time known as the tribulation period could be right around the corner. It could be in 5 years, 10 years, 50 years, 150 years. We don't know. But the key question is not, when will this happen? The key question is, are you ready? You're not ready if you have not surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless of your view on the timing of the event known as the rapture or the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, regardless of your views on on eschatology or end times theology you are not ready for what's ahead if you have not received jesus christ as your lord and savior whether you believe it or not the wrath of god is going to come to this earth eventually god has said it and if it doesn't happen god is a liar which he is not the wrath of god is going to come to this earth god is incredibly patient amazingly long-suffering that he allows To go on, what goes on in this world is remarkable. But the day will come when his wrath will come to this planet. Not only that, the wrath of God is the eternal destiny of those who refuse Jesus Christ as their Savior. So the key question for us this morning, beloved, is this. It's not, well, tell me when this is going to happen. You know, what year? No, that's not. The key question is this. What is your spiritual condition today? Do you know Jesus Christ personally? Have you received him as your own Lord and Savior? I urge you to do so before it's too late. That's not a threat. It's just a gracious warning. Do so before it's too late. Let's bow together in closing this morning. And as you bow your head and close your eyes, in the last couple minutes we have remaining, and as you consider what we've seen from God's word this morning, both in the book of Revelation from the Apostle John and then in the Gospel of Mark from Jesus, it's a reminder to us that although God is incredibly, amazingly gracious and patient and long-suffering, He is also holy, and his holiness demands that he punish sin. His holiness demands that his wrath be unleashed. But the great thing is we can avoid his wrath. Even John the baptizer used the phrase, flee from the wrath to come. Just get away from it. you, You don't have to face his wrath. Scripture says God is not willing that any should perish. So if someone faces the wrath of God, it's because that man or woman has chosen to face the wrath of God. So I urge you this morning, just look at your own life. Don't think about all these other things that we looked at which can be so overwhelming. Just look at your own life and ask yourself where you stand with Jesus Christ. Have you surrendered your life to him? Do you genuinely know him personally as Lord and Savior? If you're not right with the Lord, then let go of whatever is holding you back and surrender to him today. Father, you are so gracious to give us in Scripture these warnings. You you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to tell us about the future and what is planned for the future and what's going to happen here on planet Earth. But you have done that in many passages. Many times you have laid out what is going to happen in the future. And you have warned this planet. You have warned earth that wrath is coming. And it has to come because you are a righteous God, a holy God. And you cannot allow all of the evil and wickedness that is Unfolded and transpired here on planet Earth to go unchecked or unpunished. So we recognize that it is a necessity, and yet we also recognize that it is something that we can avoid. It's something we don't have to face. So, Father, I pray for every one of us gathered here in this room that we would take an honest look at our lives to see where we stand spiritually, to see where we stand with you and with your Son, the Lord Jesus. And if there is something holding us back, whatever that happens to be, Father, I pray we would let go, that we would be willing to let go and simply surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ in simple, childlike faith. May you stir our hearts and work in our hearts to that end. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.